I didn't think about it. Missy's leaving while I tell this story about her, but uh, <laughs> nothing you can do about it now. You've got to take her to church. So just, uh, she knows all the stories I tell about her, so it's okay. Um, and, and really, everybody's had this story, uh, whether you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle or happened to us when we were dating, and I, in an effort to romantically impress my future bride, asked her to uh, wake up extra early, 5.30, 6 o'clock. We were at college. It's always a good time to wake up early. We'd go have uh, a little uh, uh, coffee, and I would uh, take her somewhere. She didn't know where. So she agreed, and we were still getting to know each other. This was fairly early, and I really was trying to be very impressive. And I had this great plan. You see, in Chicago, they have the... um, this place that just kind of juts out into the lake and the planetarium is there and you can see a beautiful, you know, uh, just beautiful picture of the whole city from that location. And if you ever see a picture of Chicago, nine times out of ten it comes from that spot because you can just see everything. And it's really particularly pretty at sunrise and sunset. So I had a breakfast sunset date planned for my bride And uh, we got up, and we got in the car, and we started driving down there, and she had no idea where we were going. And so she was confused. And it became obvious, even after we got coffee, that she was also a little irritated. Because I found out that morning that my wife, as wonderful as she is, is not a morning person. Amen? So I had this great big uh, plan for her planned out, and uh, we get to this spot, and the sun just starts coming up, and I realize it's incredibly cloudy today. So it didn't really work out that well. She wasn't much of a morning person, so it didn't mean much to her anyway, and she had this kind of time of confusion. You have that when you're a parent, too. Let's say you want to take your kid to Chuck E. Cheese's, and you know they're going to have a fun time. They're going to have a blast. They love this place. But in order to get them there, you have to get them in the car. And they're playing with their toys. So you try to pull them away from their toys, and they have this moment of just terror. Like, why are you taking me away from this terrible thing I want to do? But in the meantime, in your parental sovereignty, you know what's going to happen. You know that at the end of that trip, they're going to be in utter bliss. They're going to enjoy themselves so much. But there's that middle section, that time where... They don't know what's going on. It's confusing. It's maybe tiring. It's hard. And that's what we're going to talk about today. See, there's a great reality that is waiting for us that our Heavenly Father has planned. But we have to live through the pain and confusion and frustration and exhaustion that we call life before we get there. So, In this course of life, we need to learn to trust. And if we can trust our Savior's plan, if we can trust that he will get us through the hardships of life so that we will enjoy those blessings, we will see what he has in store for us. And we're going to look at that idea in a story that, uh, in a story that, uh, of of Jesus healing somebody. And we're going to see just three things. We're going to talk about what Jesus did, why he did it that way, and what that means for us. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, and just verses 31 to 37 today. Seven short verses. Mark 7, verses 31 to 37. 
Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. And I'll read the whole section. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, through the region of the Decapolis. They brought, uh, they brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that means be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So this is another one of those stories where, where Jesus heals somebody. And I'm not going to try to get you all revved up every time Jesus heals somebody. You know Jesus healed people. That was, that was his M.O. when he was on earth. It's incredible. It's a miracle. And it tells us something. But this story isn't about Jesus healing somebody. It's about the way Jesus healed somebody. So this story is basically that Jesus healed a guy. What did he do? He healed a guy, but he did it in a, in a very particular, in a very strange way. And this is one of, or for me, it was one of the most confusing stories in our Gospels of what Jesus does and why, until I, I had a chance to really go through it. And I want to just talk about some things, of the, uh, some things about the way Jesus went about this story, the way he did the healing and the way Mark records it, because it actually is going to tell us something much deeper than the fact that Jesus healed somebody. First, uh, it says that he was in Tyre, and he went to Sidon. Now, this already would have raised some flags because, you know, Tyre, it was up north. I mean, way up north. It, it, was, it was actually a, a region that has always been uh, antagonistic to Israel. It, it's a region that, where all, all the Gentiles lived, and it has some bad reputations, okay? It's, a, it's the kind of place where if somebody goes up there, you think, okay, you must be going on a mission trip, right? Because, because good Israelite people don't go to Tyre to vacation. And then he goes up through Sidon. And the weird thing about that is it's a long route. Go ahead and go to that next slide. And he's in Tyre, which is that upper left-hand circle. And the way, uh, the place he wants to end up is that lower right-hand circle, but he goes north. He goes through Sidon. It would be like going from Dallas to Greenville through Oklahoma. All right, Jesus is doing something kind of strange, and we don't have any direct explanation in the text. So that's the first thing he does. Now, he, 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 uh, is approached by this deaf man and apparently his, his friends because the deaf man also can't speak. If you've ever met somebody who's deaf, uh, they have a hard time talking and if they, if they have their hearing through part of their life and maybe went deaf and during the teen years, they can, they can often talk, oftentimes talk, but it, it's hard for them to get the right tone and even know exactly what they're saying. And that's probably what's going on with this man. He cannot hear and he cannot communicate. So he goes around with a group of friends and they beg him to heal him. And Jesus does something that he doesn't always do. He, he takes them off to the side, right? This is a private healing. This is something that's not going to be done in front of the crowds. And there's a whole lot of speculation as to why he might be doing that. Certainly he doesn't, at the end of the chapter, he's going to tell them, you know, don't tell anybody about 
don't tell anybody about this. And so he doesn't want people to be kind of sculpting that narrative for him. He wants to heal and do his work on his own terms. But I think there's something else that's going on here. And, and what's interesting is, again, Jesus does something he never does. Uh, he never does anything quite like it. He puts his hands in the man's ears, his fingers in his ears, and then he spits. All right? So if you're getting hungry, this is going to help because the idea is actually that he spits and with his spit touches the man's tongue. All right? Gross, right? But what in the world is he doing? Because this actually isn't the healing. This isn't where the man gets healed. Man's still deaf. The man is still mute at this point. All right? So Jesus isn't giving some sort of incantation. He's not giving some sort of magical process for us to follow. What is he doing? Well, I think the best explanation that I read, and, and this, I hope this is it because, man, it made sense to me, is, is that Jesus is taking this man into a place where there isn't a huge crowd of people that are going to be distracting him, and then he, he, he's getting that one-on-one -on -one attention, a man who cannot hear what Jesus has to say, and what does he do? He says, he says I'm going to heal your ears. He's communicating to this guy in a way that only he can understand. He's, he's uh, going past this man's needs, and he's making sure he understands what is going to happen. Spit at this time, and Jesus is in a region, again, that is uh, very much Gentile. It's, it's Greek. It's not a, a traditional conservative Jewish region. And so they had different beliefs that people believed back then, and one of the ideas was that a human person's spit uh, particularly, particularly a powerful or famous person, was, uh, was, had healing properties. All right, So I think Jesus is actually communicating to this man that cannot hear. This is what's going to happen. I am going to open your ears. I am going to loose your tongue so that you can speak. And I imagine this guy, as he's watching Jesus do this, there's confusion. He's not sure what's going on. He's probably suffered for years and years and years in this condition, but he knows that this man has the power, and now he's trying to put these pieces together. Is he going to do this? Is he going to do what I think he's going to do? He touched my ears. Is that going to, is that going to bring them back? That healing power, is that, going to, is that going to be given to me? Then Jesus, he, he keeps doing things that he's uh, never done before. He doesn't do very often. He looks up to heaven. He does that a lot. But he does this uh, deep sigh. And my translation says sigh. Your translation might say groan. And it's, it's that, that kind of same idea of groan. It's actually a very specific word. The word is used throughout the New Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's basically used for one purpose. It is a person's response to a sinful world. It's a person's response to a sinful world when, when that world just hurts. We, were, uh, we did some, some visiting this, this week, and, and we uh, talked with several folks that were in the hospital. And I'll tell you what, there is just some, there is some suffering going on by wonderful people in our church, and, and it was just difficult. And, and one thing that we just kept doing without even thinking about it is throughout those visits, I would just... <sighs> Because sometimes when life hurts so bad that you can't even express it in words, all you have is that, that sigh, that groan, that why is this like this? And even as I was thinking about this, I was, I was thinking about what some of these families were going through, and I just did it again without even thinking. And that's Jesus' expression of his frustration, his sadness, his grief 
at what sin is doing in this world. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna show all of this to you in a second, I, but I wanna, I wanna kind of give you a framework as we see what this means. But Jesus is looking up to heaven and with this kind of deep sigh, this deep groan, he, he acknowledges that God is still in control and he is going to be the one who brings that healing. Then he says something. He says, Ephatha, which if you hadn't noticed that, that's not in English like the rest of the things that Jesus says, right? This is Aramaic. This is something that was very common back then, but Mark records it in Aramaic. The rest of the New Testament was written in Greek, but he keeps this, this word in Aramaic, which is kind of like a, a cousin or like a married cousin to Hebrew. It's a really close language to Hebrew, all right? And he, he keeps it in there. And it makes us wonder why. There's only a few times in Scripture where we know that Jesus does this. You know, he, he raises the little girl, Talitha Kum, and when he's on the cross, he cries out, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, uh, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? There's some, there are times in Scripture where Jesus speaks in this way, and it, it shows that this is an important event. This is something that we need to pay attention to, we need to dig into, we need to try to understand, okay? Let's hang on to that, too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make it all make sense in a minute here. That's when the healing happens. Not the touching of the ears, not the spit, all right? But it says, when he said this word, which means be opened, he commanded this man's ears to open and his tongue was loosed and he could talk normally again. And that's how Jesus' miracles always happen. He, he speaks to the sinfully destroyed world and everything in the body or in the physical realm reorganizes so that the evil that sin has done has been undone. That's exactly what Jesus is showing us today. See, Jesus is the only one who can undo all of the sin in this world, all of the evil in this world. But guess what? Jesus came and he died and he rose again but we still have that suffering. So what are we supposed to do with that? It's interesting, he says, don't, don't tell everybody about this. And it says, the more he commanded them, the more they went and told. And, and I was, this happens a couple times in scripture and I was thinking, you know, it's, it's interesting. The only thing in the Bible that doesn't obey Jesus is people, right? Demons obey Jesus ears obey Jesus, the dead, death itself obeys Jesus, uh, the waves, nature obeys Jesus. If Jesus speaks, things happen. Nature reorganizes itself because it knows that that is my commander and I'm the one who obeys him. But then he tells us to do things and it's like the more he tells us to do something, the less we listen. So he gave this man the ability to hear and I can just imagine after having maybe not heard anything for most of his life, the first thing you hear is, is that word, be opened. You hear the voice of Jesus. And he just can't contain himself. I, I listen, I, I, feel like I, I feel like I'm sympathetic with him, but, but what's going to happen here is that uh, his fame, Jesus' fame is going to continue to spread and it's actually going to inhibit his ability to keep going around openly. So Jesus healed a guy. He did it in a weird way. And the reason that he does all these things that he's not done before is to show the world that he is the promised Messiah, the Christ. 
And he's actually living out a text that, we're gonna, that we read earlier today, Isaiah 35. All right, so I, I, want, you to, I want you to hold on in your Bibles to Mark, 30, uh, to Mark 7. But if you're a good flipper, go ahead and flip over to Isaiah 35. And we won't read the whole thing again, but I just want uh, to read parts of this, and I want to ask if you recognize what's happening here. Isaiah 35 is widely recognized by Jewish scholars and Christian scholars as what's called a messianic psalm, a, or a, a prophecy, a, a prophecy that is uh, foretelling the Messiah, the anointed one, the hero who's going to come in and ultimately destroy sin and its effects and make everything right. We call that, that the word that we use for that today is Christ. All right, when Jesus is called the Christ, we don't we think of that as a last name, but it really means Messiah, anointed one. It's the Greek word for that. He is this man who is going to come and undo everything evil that sin has caused. And, and immediately we're hit with the location of, of this psalm. So in verse 2, it says, uh, he's talking about the wilderness. It says, it'll blossom abundantly and we'll rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. I don't know if you know your ancient Israel geography, but, but Lebanon, one of the chief cities in that area, or two of the chief cities in that area were called uh, Tyre and Sidon. Right? So Jesus starts in the same kind of place where this is going. And if you go down to uh, Mount Carmel, it's a little bit south of that, and Sharon and that area, it's right in the middle of Israel. And that's uh, right about where Jesus ends up, maybe a little west of there. But he's saying that but Jesus is already going to these Gentile people. And if you're a Jew reading this, uh, uh, the, the scroll of Isaiah, before Jesus came, you would be thinking to yourself, man, that's a weird place to go. Those are weird people up there. You know, those are Gentiles. If I went up there, I would have to, to cleanse myself. I might have to offer a sacrifice. I would be ritually unclean. Why would the Messiah show up and show his glory to Lebanon? Why would he go up to those people? Because Jesus' salvation is not just for one area, one people, it is for the world. So he starts in the, in the same place, Isaiah 35. Uh, the, the reason that everybody recognizes Mark 7 as a, uh, a picture of Isaiah 35 is verse 5. It says, Then the eyes of the blind will be open, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Uh, two of those are fulfilled in this one story here. And you know of, of other stories, other miracles, where Jesus continues to show himself to be the Messiah. And, and even when John the Baptist questions him, Jesus uses language from this. He says, Go, tell him what you see. Right? The, the, the lame leap, the dumb speak, that people are being healed. And there are other verses, other scriptures that he talks about as well that really communicate the same thing. One thing that's interesting is that word in verse 5, the, uh, the word that is translated mute. Right? I said that this man, he probably can speak, but it's with difficulty. And that's really what the word means, but mute is kind of the word that's always been used to translate it. Uh, but it's the exact same Greek word. It's used twice in the Bible. It's used here in Isaiah 35, and it's used in Mark 7. The only time that this word 
uh, two times that this word is used in the Bible. Okay, we talked about why would Jesus use Aramaic. Remember, he says, Ephatha, all right? Uh, be open. And why is Mark preserving it in that way? Same type of thing. Actually, if you look at verse 5, it says, The eyes uh, of the blind will be open, and the word that he uses in Aramaic, there's a Hebrew word that's the same root, pata. It's used in this uh, in, in this exact chapter, right in the middle at the climax of this. And finally, look at the end of Isaiah 35, verse 10. The redeemed of uh, the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with an unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will not flee. Again, that word sighing, that's that same word for groaning. It's that response to sin. It's not the frustrated, grumbling, petty groaning that we see the, the, the people doing all throughout the Old Testament. It's when life hurts and all of the effects of sin are realized, and all you can do is just hang your head sigh or groan or grieve. That's that same word. So this is an outline, basically, of Isaiah 35, and it's replicated right there in Mark 7. Jesus is saying, listen, that Messiah that you heard about, the one that is prophesied over and over in the, New Test in the Old Testament, that's me. See, all of Scripture has a trajectory, Okay, this isn't just a, a collection of nice stories that are meant to make us feel good. All the way back in the beginning of Genesis, there is a, a point to all of this, and there's some place where it's going to end up. There's a trajectory, there's a place where these stories are going, and that trajectory is pointed at Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament scripture. Everything that was promised to, to the people in the Old Testament are fulfilled one way or another in Jesus. But you might look at me and say, Steve, Half of this hasn't been fulfilled, right? Uh, the, the wilderness is, is still there. In fact, whether this is spiritual or whether it's uh, a physical, there is difficulty in the world. There is still evil. God hasn't come in vengeance yet, and that's the second half. The final point, Jesus is the Messiah who is coming back to undo all that sin has done. One thing, if, you ever, if you're ever reading, I hope you are, biblical prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all throughout the, the scriptures, there are prophecies. Uh, there's a kind of a key that you might want to know about. The biblical prophecy isn't, uh, isn't very straightforward. And there's this theme kind of that we have thought up to talk about it. Scholars call it the already not yet idea. We're going to go on vacation in a couple weeks. We're going to go to California and uh, we're going to fly. But my ideal vacation is always to drive. And one of the things I'd like to do is drive up through the mountains. I didn't grow up with mountains. We had one mountain in Michigan. We call it Mount Holly. And it was the, the premier ski resort in Michigan. And it was this uh, great big uh, landfill that we piled some dirt on, and we called it a mountain. That's the mountain that I'm used to, okay? Uh, that, that is Mount Holly, Michigan. It's one of the richest places in, in lower Michigan. So that's the kind of people I come from, just so you know. But when you, when you go and you drive towards... Uh, a mountain, you see a mountain range, and you see a whole bunch of peaks, and you, it looks from your perspective that all these peaks are kind of real close together, right next to each other. But as you get closer, and as you maybe drive up to the top, you realize that some of those mountain peaks that you thought were, were right in the straight line are actually miles and miles away. See, so your, your perspective changes. That's kind of what biblical prophecy is like. 
See, Jesus came and he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament. He fulfilled uh, all of Old Testament scripture, but he's not done. There's that already that we live in, but there's also something that's coming. There's another mountain in the distance, and and that will be the final fulfillment. That will be the end of the range, and that's what we sing about today over and over again. The Messiah who will come back to his people. And he won't just make things uh, right for just uh, those who are his. He's going to undo everything, and he's going to build a perfect universe. We will be with him in that forever. That's eternal life. You and I raised from the dead, just like he is, living with him in eternal bliss forever. And I want to just point to a couple things. So if, if, if we understand Isaiah 35 to be kind of the picture that Jesus is painting here, then these are some things uh, that we have to look forward to. First, uh, real justice will take place. Uh, verse 4 says, Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. You know, justice is uh, it's an interesting concept today. Uh, it's almost an absent concept today. Uh, there's a story in the news of a man who, apparently, if he's guilty, and it looks like he is, has been trafficking teenage girls for his whole life. And uh, the first time he got caught, he went to jail, but they let him go 12 hours a day and do his own thing. And and finally, it looks like he might get what's coming to him. He might uh, finally go to trial and be convicted. But here's the thing. I said, if he's found guilty, his sentence will be 45 years in prison max. Now, he'll die in prison if that happens, if, if our system of justice works, right? Maybe it's just since I've had some daughters. To me, that's not justice. That, those kind of people getting out of their crimes, being able to, to, to live and, and to not face the right retribution, so frustrating, so sickening. But God promises real justice. God promises a satisfaction with the termination of sin and the punishment of the wicked. And that's something that actually we have to look forward to. All the evil in the world is going to be not only destroyed, but it's going to be punished. But here's the thing. That makes a problem for us, doesn't it? Because as much as we like to judge other people, Scripture says that we deserve the same hellfire. And so now we have the issue of God coming back and judging us, but there's other parts to this prophecy. There, uh, there is grace, there is redemption. He says there will be a way, and it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel it, but, but it will be uh, for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion, no vicious beast, but here it is. The redeemed will walk on it. The redeemed of the Lord will return. Jesus is ultimately coming not just to punish evil, but to redeem us. To redeem us, to make something good out of all of the bad that we have done. That's what the cross is about. It is a, it is a punishment for our sin, for all sin, for those who would trust in Jesus. 
but it is also the, the first step to the resurrection. Because without the cross, there is, there is no resurrection. Without the punishment there, there is no hope of eternal life. And that's what he offers us today. When, when we talk about redemption, everything bad that we've done, all the evil that we are, all the sinful, whether they're thoughts or, or actions or, or, or our emotions, all the anger that we felt, all of the pride that we give into, all of the bitterness that we hold on to, all of the selfishness that drives us, all the things that we deserve punishment for, Jesus took that on the cross so that we could walk with him in this new paradise. We could have redemption. He's going to take those people who deserve punishment and make them a display of his glory, of his love, of his goodness. Everything is going to be undone. The dead will be raised to life. The family members that we've lost and that we've grieved over, we'll see them again. We'll be united with them again. Birth defects will be healed. If you've ever watched those, those videos that go around Facebook or YouTube of uh, maybe a baby who gets uh, ear implants or glasses so he could see right, and they just light up when everything goes right. Their faces just open up and smile. That's what heaven will be like. Relationships that are pure, that are deep, that are fun. No, no pollution, no sickness. Nothing will wear down or deteriorate. No rust. Your knee's not going to hurt anymore. You're not going to get up wondering it, uh, what's going to start aching today. We will live with God in right relationship with him. That's what the Messiah promises. That's, that's why we sing about him, because he's not just the God who punishes, but the God who redeems. He's the God who makes everything bad good. And that's the only God that is worth living for. That's the only claim that, that is worth following your whole life. And that's what we want to offer to you today. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this reality, this promise, this hope that we have. We don't have to sit here in, in guilt and shame. We can look forward to hope, to vindication, to resurrection. And God, we trust you to bring that about because your word says you will and we know you are faithful. So while we hurt, while we go through the hard times of life here, God, help us to, help us to focus on what will be. Help us to focus on the redemption that you will bring. Help us to focus on how great your glory will be when you display all that you have done in the world. 